0: Welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast, everybody. It's Toby Miller here, and I am in Simon Order's jungle. Is that right, or is it a forest?
1: Yeah, I think it's um, a forest actually. Maybe some light birds, a bit of wind in the trees in the background. Um, Certainly sets the scene for uh, for the way I like to do business. And Simon Sound is your business? Yeah, very much. Pretty much obsessed from a very early age, probably from ah oh, probably twelve, thirteen years of age. Really? Yeah, I remember pulling my father's hi-fi apart and working out what wires did what and what would happen if I unplugged things. And, and then I found... was he happy about that? Well, r- remarkably, I actually managed to um, keep it all working. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then I found a soldering iron. In, oh. in my dad's toolkit, which he never used because he hated DIY. And uh, and then I started soldering things and repairing things. So, uh, you know, when the cable was broken, unplug it, mm-hmm. unscrew it. And, oh, it's a broken cable. Maybe I can fix that. Mm-hmm. And the other thing that we had when I was growing up was an old radiogram. You know one of those huge pieces of furniture? Sure. So it's got like... um. The platter in the middle, and you have all the old shellac discs, the seventy eights. I remember one. I think Perry Como was one of my dad's favourites. Magic moments. That's it. And um, all those kind of things. And he had he had the radiogram on the side, and it was this kind of tall thing, and it had AM and FM and long wave, and you could scroll through and listen to. And I remember listening. Radio stations all over Europe. Mm. Couldn't understand a word they said, of course, because they were in French or Dutch. Or, um, but that fascination with audio that was coming from other places. Yeah. I used to, as a
0: child in Britain to make tape recordings on cassettes of the long wave band that I would just skim through right across Europe late at night. Yeah. Was, uh, just the sounds that different stations. And skimming, yeah, and yeah, yeah. Include the, uh-huh. the the static. Yeah, I, I can com- absolutely. I'd completely forgotten about that until you mentioned it. Yes, the exciting life of the adolescent. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> but the other thing I remember most about growing up was um, was John Peel mm-hmm. um, and uh, listening to his ten till midnight show um, in the UK, and he was a, a major part of my youth. And John Peel was known for breaking. The most unusual of new bands in the UK at the time.
0: Everything from sex pistols through to rap artists, actually, wasn't it? Yeah, it, it, it was wasn't... very Catholic and eclectic in his tastes.
1: He certainly wasn't genre specific. Um, and I suppose that, that idea of trying to be cutting edge and breaking new things and hearing new things and pushing the boundaries and envelopes of pop music, mm. and doing new things, not regurgitating formula. very exciting for me and I thought that's what I wanted to do.
0: So I guess we've fallen into something chronological which is nice. (laughs) You are doing the traditional thing in a way of mucking about at home with the technology that's available there. Then you're developing interests in what would be a way of doing things differently as per John Peel. Enormously influential listeners for really maybe 35 years of Radio 1, mm-hmm. mostly, if not exclusively, on the BBC, which otherwise was very much a young person's and top 40 style station. So he did stand out, as Simon suggests. So what did you do once you get to whatever it is, 16 or 18, and you know, it's time to make decisions?
1: Well, um, I had a lot of trouble when I was in high school because I had uh, extremely long hair, mm-hmm. um, uh, which all fell out, unfortunately. Um, so I got to about 16 and a half and my headmaster called me up into his office, and I'd been a bit of a tearaway, and he said, oh, look, Simon, and we've had enough of you. Um, unless you have your hair cut, we won't enter you for your A-level. Nice. Yeah, which, which was very harsh indeed. And the
0: authority was invested in him by whom? Oh, I don't know. With this extraordinary statement. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, but strangely, it, it changed my life overnight because I, I wanted to do my A-levels. And, and So I had to go and get my hair cut. But got as a, a result... Got an A-level with haircuts. Yeah. But as a result, I had my hair cut and I was able to get a job after that. Because back then, it you know, wouldn't employ long-haired layabouts. But I was quite an intelligent long-haired layabout. So getting, getting a haircut was useful so I when I got a job I was able to sort of buy a car and then um, I was able to spend money on, on, on music um, and buy and buy more music and also um, upgrade my my bass guitar which was my love and, and buy a new amplifier which is I love and, um, and yeah I started playing in lots of bands mm-hmm. essentially and where was this this was in, um, in Kent in mm-hmm. Maidstone mm-hmm. um, originally from a little village called Elsford. Quaint little place on -hmm. on the River Medway, Um, very quiet indeed. But I wanted uh, the high life, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Mm. I've heard of them. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Uh, but eventually, um, when I left school, um, I actually ended up working for British Rail. (laughs) And uh, I did that for about three years, and I I met this. this lady who was um, very artistic, she was a stained glass artist, and she wanted to go to art school,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and I was completely over head over heels, so um, I thought, yeah, art school sounds good, oh, I fancy a bit of that. What um, were you doing in British Rail, by the way? I was a, a relief clerical officer, uh-huh. so I used to travel around all over the southern region doing lots of clerical duties, so I travelled a lot. Interesting. Yeah, it was, and it was all free the travelling, um, and we got free travel around Europe, I did a bit of travelling, mm. um, but I'd also developed an interest in photography, and I thought this was my ticket into art school mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and a life of creativity and esoteric, sort of esoteric. I was really very idealistic as a child, and very in love with this one. Yes, very much. Yeah, she influenced you, and that's exciting. Yeah, it was. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's it, you know at that time of life, it's all hormones and emotion. So, I, I became a photographer from um, all intents and purposes and spent four years at art school. And again, I, I was obsessed. Was this in Kent also? In no, I history? moved to um, Bournemouth, mm-hmm. which is one of the finest photography colleges at the time, allegedly. And um, yeah, I, I worked as a photographer, and I studied as a photographer. And, but I was also playing a lot of music as well, mm-hmm. so, there were two parallel careers going right. on. Um, um, so yeah, I left there after four years. But one thing about art school, it, it changed changed me significantly in the way I thought about everything, um, the way I thought about creating stuff, mm-hmm. the way I approached, the way I had had learned to approach photography, I could apply to all sorts of other things. Is that so? Now what was it? Well, it was about creative decision making, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. and I. The craft of photography as it was back then, this was pre-digital, I began to realise that from the moment that you put the viewfinder to your eye to the final moment when you saw your picture exhibited in an exhibition, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it was just many, many small creative decisions. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and Each creative decision was very important, however small it was, because it amounted to this much greater outcome. And I could apply, I've managed to apply that to everything else that I was doing in my life, like making music, um, and any kind of production process. So I became production, I became, without realising it, a a production um, expert.
0: So partly mm self-taught, but partly drawing on the inspiration of the entire process of making photography, and seeing that not as... A one-off moment of composition, but an iteration of creativity across sites and processes. Is that right?
1: Yeah, I think you summed it up well there. Yeah, it's a number of. It's it, it's it was the craft. Mm. And and also I remember having a very um, erudite professor at art school, who who used to say to me, we used to have these regular tutorials every couple of weeks, and he'd tell. I want you to bring your shit. I said, what do you mean bring my shit? He said, everything you've done in between having an idea and then you know, having a finished picture. I don't really want to see the finished picture. Oh, I'm interested in the process that's in between. Mm. He said, I want to see your process. I want to see your shit. Anyway, he, he, he was fascinated with this stuff and he taught me so much about the process, the journey, rather than the destination.
0: Well, um, lots of mathematicians are very interested in that. Lots of archivists
1: are very interested in that. Yeah. So it's something I try to impart to my own students now, the fascination with the details of the process. Mm. And that being immersed in that process is almost just as important as, and, and as productive as the final outcome. Because mm. once the outcome has, is finished, and it's, it's over, it, it's gone. You're not, you're not in the process anymore and you're not... You can you can have some pride in your work, um, but I don't believe it's all about just producing artifacts. I think it's more important to be in in the process. I'm more I'm more interested in enjoying the process and finagling the process, tweaking the process. The outcome hopefully will be good.
0: So in terms of feeding these appetites, you've done British Rail. You're playing the gigs. You're Making with photography, you're in art school. You have all these interesting things. So what happens next? Do you become an X or a Y at a, an S or a P, Place?
1: Um, well, I realised very early on that sex and drugs and rock and roll was a great lifestyle, but I suppose by about my mid-twenties, I realised that you'd have to be very, very lucky to make a living out of being a musician. It's a brilliant insight, that I think you should share with millions of others. <laughs> So, I needed a plan B. Um, so, photography was going okay, but after I left art school, I, I have to admit, it took a bit of a dive in my interest. So, I realised I wanted a plan B in the music world or the mm. sound world. Mm-hmm. So, I, I started um, spending more time in my studio and um, building on the stuff I'd done when I was a kid, you know, building studios. You, you made
0: studios. You yeah, made studios. I, I, wow. I really got into
1: the technical side yes. of things. And, um I was lucky enough to um, be with a group of people who were able to finance uh, my first studio. Wow. And I, I built it and I ran it and um, we made a little bit of money. Was this, this was in Bournemouth? Yes, it was. And this is in the
0: 90s? Yes, 70, in 70?
1: the 90s. And at the same time, I was also working as a live engineer at one of the local venues. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had all the live stuff going on and I was meeting lots of bands and... Um, um, producing them live, and then sometimes I would, the link would work, but they would come to my studio, so then we would record them. So I was really starting wow. to network in that that scene, and Bournemouth's not very far from London, so, and uh, big towns like Southampton, so we've got a lot, a lot mm. of bigger bands coming. Mm-hmm. And I got um, to produce some quite interesting bands. I suppose one of my claims to fame would be working with um, 70s rock favourites, Galahad. Wow. Um, Who, uh, I mean, I didn't realise how big they were in the 70s because I was probably a bit young. Mm. And they came to me in the 90s. uh, By now, dissolute and destroyed. No, they're still still going now. (laughs) Yes. I used to listen to them on Tommy Vance's rock show on a Friday night and think, geez, these guys are wonderful. And years later, they ended up in my studio. And um, this was when... um, Technology was changing to digital, and they were kind of long in the tooth they wanted analog two inch tape mm-hmm. and all this and they came to see me and my studio because we 'd just gone to digital audio tape, and they were kind of curious but a bit a bit a f- a feared I think of mm. how it would sound mm. and they were trying to make this decision about whether they would do their whole album with me or whether they would do sort of put their finger in the test of water, if you like, so they did a single with me, I produced it and um, it went very well, I think we were top ten in, in Romania that week mm-hmm. when it finally came out which was, which was you know, that's the type of music they play, very popular in Eastern Europe, but ultimately they went elsewhere to do the album um, and as a parting shot I said, oh, send me the samples, send me some samples um, when you finish the album maybe we can do a remix and these were guys that were Immersed in the prog rock scene, I'm not sure they knew what a remix Remix was, (laughs) and I was getting into drum and bass and house music and changing my whole musical taste. I didn't see them for six months, and they rocked up on my doorstep at home one day and gave me three digital audio tapes and said, "Oh, here's here the samples that we're happy to release. Do your worst." And we did a remix album, um, which I produced most of it, but we also got the keyboard player from Galahad and a few other people. It was. um, It was called. The 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 album was called Ghosts, and the remix album was called Deconstructing Ghosts, which is kind of nice. The the critics hated it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) For listeners who, many of whom are not English as first language, could you unpack prog rock, progressive rock, but tell them a bit of what it was and what would be so different about a remix from prog rock?
1: Well, I suppose prog rock is really rooted in musicality and extended immersion in musicality. So if you're a guitar player and, you know, you wanted to show off your your lick, so to speak, prog rock's the, the best place to go. Yeah. Because you'd probably get, you know, five minutes solo, if not more. I mean, bands that would exemplify prog rock, prog rock would be a band like Yes. Um, or Bits of Genesis. Bits of Genesis. Um, I suppose Led Zeppelin to some degree, although they were more poppy. Um, extended... 12-minute songs where everybody gets to play a solo. Very complex arrangements, very musical and very self-absorbed and very much about them as personalities and musicians.
0: And sometimes mystical, definitely leading to a reaction against that, exemplified in punk, really, I suppose.
1: Yeah, definitely. And I think, for me, one of the great things about dance music, it was faceless. Right. <laughs> So I didn't have to watch another long-haired, lycra-clad <laughs> rocker with his foot on the monitor, you know, thrusting his pelvis backwards and forwards, attempting to pull chicks. I, I didn't. I didn't really appreciate that anymore. No. I was well over it. So this idea of dance music and taking some prog rock and remixing it into a you know, completely different form was um, very exciting. Big hair was a very important part of prog rock. Yeah, as, as actually, in all seriousness, it was. Yes.
0: So. The, the remix is dance oriented and I'm interested in your use of the word faceless. This is also a period when engineers, producers, DJs are coming to be authors, aren't they? They're coming to be sometimes more renowned than the inverted commas artists, divisional artists.
1: Yeah, um there's a cultural shift happening, but I think it's there's an underlying driver of technology involved. Mm. I'm not saying that's the only thing, but it had a a significant impact because technology was now, music production technology was in the hands of um, anybody who who wanted to get involved. When I first started out in music production, it was many hundreds, many thousands of pounds, dollars to set up a studio. Mm. You needed money. If you move forward to the mid-90s, now bedroom workstations were becoming much more normal. And in, in in the '90s, I was producing whole tracks on my own on an Atari, mm-hmm. and an Atari with one floppy disk, which was 1.4 megabytes of, of memory, and um, managing to get tracks released like that. Um, and move forward ten years, and technology has increased exponentially, and it gives more control um, to to DJs, producers, um, anybody who wants to do it. So in mm-hmm. some ways, technology has been A driver of democratization Mm. of music production, Um, but then you've also got issues of, uh, which is pointed out to me a lot by other people, especially musicians. You've got issues of quality control. Mm. We're we're now in a situation where every man and his dog's got a SoundCloud account, and you've got to sort through just endless amounts of very mediocre stuff. Well, all those
0: middle management people who lost their jobs in the majors were the A and R guys, the artists and repertoire guys. Those gatekeepers, and many of them are glad to, many of us are glad to see they're gone. Actually, had to listen to a lot of fucking crap, <laughs> right? In order to say, well, actually, that's not so good, and we'll get rid of that. But all these major record labels got themselves rid of these middle guys. They're the ones who've really been removed, and they performed, one might argue, quite a useful role by going to gigs, like a regular mm. fan such as yourself did when younger, and saying. That's a good. That's not so good. Now, some of them were monsters and they missed good bands, but they did some of that quality control.
1: Yeah, um, there are definitely two sides to that. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I think I'm glad that we've moved to where we are now. Right, right. I think our ability to distribute and produce um, and network um, and carve our own career mm. is greatly improved for musicians and producers. Sure,
0: no, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't deny you that at all. I'm just suggesting there's, when it comes to this issue of the more casual listener, some gatekeepers were quite valuable.
1: Yeah, when I mean, simplifying I Simplifying things. Oh, for, for sure. I, I, I know a fair few DJs, and they're always telling me that they're sifting through endless amounts of crap, mm-hmm. looking for gems. Um, and I suppose DJs have taken over that gatekeeper role.
0: Well, it's funny to think back, it, almost everybody n- listening to this will know who Simon Cowell is. Mm-hmm. He was a pusher of singles to, on, to Radio 1 for mm-hmm. a label. You know, one of those guys who just came and knocked on your door and said, look, this is good, this is not so good, try this, try that. God knows how legit it was, but that's how he got his break, actually. It's this kind of middle person
1: gatekeeper. Purveyors of taste, um, that, that those kind of roles have disappeared a lot now. Mm-hmm. Um, um, I mean, I have um, a, a publishing deal and a record label that I you know, send my stuff to, but largely um, most of my promotions and, and networking is done by me mm. um, because independent record labels and publishers just don 't have the the resources the resources I know we're jumping
0: around a bit. Yeah. You tell us a little bit about that about your the deals that you have
1: okay um, well i 've been making music for many years, I had a big break. Um, I suppose between 2000 and quite recently, 2000 and 2010, I guess, when I was studying. Um, but I've always made music in the background, um, always generally electronic, um, and very much on the, uh, tends to be more on the, uh, the quieter side, the downbeat side, maybe mm. even the ambient side. Um, and I've also tried to synergize it with research that I'm doing in the, in the area. So, for instance, uh, the last six six oh, and a half dozen tracks I've finished, I've all come out of working with uh, handheld devices. So I've done a fair bit of traveling over the last few years, and I've been carrying phones and iPads. And I've been producing music while I'm traveling and also while I'm at Foreign destinations, and, mm. and I've become hyper aware of how that process of travelling and being having different perceptual data coming into me, rather than sitting in my studio at home, I've become very aware of how much that affects my creativity. Um, when I when I did my masters, I, I wrote an awful lot about synesthesia mm-hmm. and the way that. Um, Synesthesia, just a very brief summary, is about corresponding modes of perception. So if you're a synesthete, um, let's say you hear the note C, you may see a blob of red in your vision, and lots of people uh, have these correspondences, I say lots, it's a small percentage, but it's also been used by artists and creatives over the years as a a way to generate ideas, Mm -hmm. principally Composers like Messiaen, uh, painters Kandinsky, um, they thought this idea of trying to translate, say, audio to video, or audio to visual, um, has creative benefits. And I found the same when I've been travelling around with my with my iPad or my phone. You know, if I'm sitting on a train, then the the landscape is constantly changing, mm. um, and I'm composing. Although I'm in headphones that constant perceptual changing input is affecting what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, a, in, in in a roundabout way, that's a form of synesthesia. Um, sort a poetical form anyway. Um, so, yeah, that's where I've been... I've been experimenting, I guess, really, mm-hmm. in a scientific way. I wanted to see whether this act of travelling would impact my, mm. my creative outcomes. And I think it has. If I... I've done a few presentations where I've tried to correlate the audio with where I've been when I wrote it. Um, and there's been some success in that. It's a bit vague. Mm-hmm. You can imagine. Mm. I wrote this in Bali. Can you hear the temples in the background? The kind of right. idea. Um, I wrote this song on the subway in the UK, on the underground. And um, I had this long journey to do... It was an hour from South London to North London to a conference, and I did it for three days backwards and forwards, so it was six hours in total. And I just, I sat on the train for six hours with my headphones on, watching people get on and off the tube. And you know what it's like when you sit on the tube? You have this constant change of people coming and going. It smells, the way they look, the way they dress, their conversations. um, so you, this is constant again. This constant changing perceptual input, and I'm sitting there in my headphones trying to write music, faced with all this stuff coming and going. And and I just put I did a slideshow where I t- took some pictures of what it's like to sit on the tube, and then I played the the audio in the background. Mm-hmm. And there's a real correlation. Um, and the track was called Subway Dream, uh-huh. and it was it's like being in a dream for six hours. Yeah, I'm not sure whether there's any quantitative results. Mm -hmm. It's more qualitative. But it
0: enables listeners to your work to track some of your ideas and feelings and inspirations. And it adds a little information and value to the music and vice versa. So you were saying that you have these publishing deals. How How do you decide what you will put out on whatever it is? yourself on the website and what you will send off for the
1: gatekeeping publishing people uh, well I have a I have a guy uh, I have a relationship with the publisher who's also the record label and I send him stuff regularly mm. and um, we, we decide between us um, whether that music will be kept for an album release a single release an EP mm-hmm. release or whether he's going to try and sell it to um, a film or TV production company. Mm-hmm. Um, at the moment, I've got a track out that he's pitching to um, Canadian Canadian Bell, mm-hmm. which is the equivalent of Telstra in, in Canada, um, and we're hoping that that's going to come off, obviously, because there'll be a big budget attached to that. Um, and that particular track probably won't go on the album because it doesn't really fit with anything else on the album. Right. So there's this constant choice that we make between us. But the best thing about it is is that the gatekeeping process is done as a collaborative it's process. It's mutual. Yeah. yeah, you're engaging
0: in it. Nice style. So going back to some of the chronology, you mentioned doing a master's where you investigated synesthesia. What made you go back into university life, having been at art school and then
1: gone off into the workforce? Okay, well, I ended up working in television in -hmm. London um, for some time while I was um, doing my master's. I left the studio I was working and running in Bournemouth. Um, It came about purely by chance. um, Thames Television, um, just after they lost their broadcasting franchise, phoned my studio. It late 90s? Yeah. Yeah, it must have been late 90s. Yeah. They phoned my studio and said, oh, we're looking for a possible student for this um, role. Um, it was just uh, a, um, a studio engineer's role at Thames. And um, didn't really have any students that were suitable. or I was considering moving on. So I said, oh, uh, how about me? How about <laughs> me? Yeah. It was a bit of a down step, but it meant yeah. that I could move yeah. to a different industry. Yep. Yeah and start networking in different areas. And so I went to work for Thames Television, and I think my first gig at Thames TV was on Des O'Connor tonight um, as a studio engineer, and my first job was to put a microphone on Scary Spice. So Des O'Connor was, he is, I
0: suppose, he's still around, a, I guess, light entertainer. The 70s description of person who sits in a cardigan at the end of the night at the end of the TV show with a single spot on him on a stool, singing God didn't make little green apples, but who will also in the course of the variety hour do some vaguely risque stand up Is that a fair description of
1: Des? Yeah, he, he was very entertaining. Yeah. He, he always had good guests. Yeah. Um, I mean, the Spice Girls' night was fantastic yeah. because they came on in all their gear. Right. And I didn't know where to put this microphone. Oh, I'm sure you didn't. Yeah, and I was, very, I was quite green, actually, to yeah. the world of television. Yeah. Um,
0: so where did the mic
1: go? Oh, that's a secret. You can't, <laughs> you can't be
0: disclosed at this time.
1: <laughs> but I, my hands were shaking, I can tell you that. Yeah. yeah. Um, and from there, I went on to work on, remember, Kilroy Silk? Mm-hmm. I worked on his show um, and uh, last at the Summer Wine. Jonathan Creek, when he first started out, remember that the Mentalist show, Mentalist Detective, Um, and uh, uh, the Bill I worked on um, as a a dubbing editor. Um, But ultimately, I I got a um, bit—I felt a bit limited working um, at Thames uh, as a studio engineer. I'd been doing that in other in in another industry really. And then sort of become a production house, having lost.
0: The license right. to be a broadcast network, hadn't it? That's essentially what happened.
1: Yeah, and I was very lucky to be an in-house member of staff yeah. because most of the time they were employing yep. production houses. I think one of my my best gigs at Thames was working for the Harry Hill um, television show. <laughs> <Come on. laughs> Sorry.
0: How can you describe Harry Hill for listeners who, sadly, <laughs> are not familiar with this? Blend of cosmopolitan, sophisticated humour making.
1: (laughs) He reminded me of Eddie Izzard a little bit. Okay. Um, That sort of chain of consciousness, um, not always that funny. He certainly didn't tell stand up jokes or or gags. He just had these skits or sort of scenarios that were just inane and very funny. He had a movie out
0: recently, I remember seeing it advertised on a bus, believe it or not. Yeah, just in the last six or eight months. Anyhow, so you're doing all kinds of things. You're doing fairly high end drama, and you're doing you know cheapest, short stand up bollocks. Yeah, interesting.
1: Yeah, very much. So yeah. I got out of the studio stuff and went onto the production side. Um, so I wanted to do the the mixing and the editing. Mm. Um, so I left Hems um, and moved to a production house in Soho, Greek Street, the home, oh. the home of Sound Post in the UK. I worked for a company called Plus 8 for a while, and uh, worked more on documentaries, more serious, factual mm. television.
0: Um, and what age are you now at this point?
1: I'm you, about 30,
0: so, so you've done an enormous amount for 30.
1: Yeah, my mum said to me when I got to 30, she said, um, you've done more in your 30 years than I've done in 60. Right. Um, mm. I think that was meant as a compliment but she was just sort of reflecting on what I'd been up to um, so yeah I, I just continued working on interesting stuff documentaries um, did a great film uh, TV film pilot called Rough Magic which was with um, which was for me it was amazing because I got to work with Paul Darrow the guy from Blake Seven yeah yeah And as became, cult figure oh, really cult figure especially in that role oh he, what, was the, um, what was
0: his character's name? Blake. No, he, no, wasn't. he wasn't Blake. No, he wasn't Blake, was he? Um, he was the sort of bad, good guy. He was. Blake was the dumb leader. Avon. 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 He was a wonderful character. That this is. is a sort of spaceship get made mm. of cardboard. If you think back <laughs> to early Doctor Who, it looked rich and sophisticated by contrast with the mise en scène of Blake 7. But they were on some spaceship that got lost somewhere or it broke down or something. There were seven of them, and Avon was this bizarre figure who became the cult-loved figure for audiences all over the world who watched it, because he was a bad guy who was also charming and sophisticated, and everybody else was sort of nerdy and stupid. You know yes. what I mean? He was a wonderful... And Paul Darrow was a great actor, too.
1: He was. He was a really, really great actor. And I, I managed to get the gig to do this spin-off. Um, it was called Rough Magic. It was a bit of an oh, H- H- HP Lovecraft okay. you know? style thing. Fancy. And I, I had befriended the composer um, via another friend of mine who was also making music. Oh. Um, so I got to do um, the, the, the mix, the dubbing mix for that as a movie and to work with, you know, Paul Darrow and, and, and that production team, which is fantastic. And it, it, was, a pilot, it was a pilot for a, a BBC, series that never, BBC series that never actually happened.
0: Um, I think Blake seven people came together and did a radio one-off in the last few years. Radio Four. I might have done. Do but I've, so. I've been out of the UK. It's, it's, it's the yeah. Anyway, but so that
1: must have been fascinating. It was yeah, yeah. it was, yeah, it um, was. And, and then ultimately, I, I, um, the, the, the production house um, went bust, and so I was uh, at work. So um, a job came up at a university, and I thought, oh, I'll give that a go, because I'd been working in education in Bournemouth as well.
0: Had you done the MA by
1: now? Or yeah, I'd finished. You done the, MA. the MSC actually? MSC it was a science.
0: And where was that, the MSC? That was at city. And then, so you go into a university, which one did you start working
1: at? The University of West London. Mm -hmm. And they were one of the few unis at that point who were doing degrees in um, sound uh, Mm. production. And they also did radio. And uh, yeah, I flourished there. Um, I started out as half technical, half teaching, and then ended up as purely teaching. Mm -hmm. And I stayed there for... Years. I loved it at the University of West, uh, West London. Really good good um, family of people to work with. Um, but I, I developed interests in um, Australia. My closest buddy, um, he had a family here in, in Perth, and mm-hmm. uh, he decided that he wanted to migrate. And so I came out with him a few times for holidays, and um, eventually I came out as his best man at his wedding. And I I fell in love with the land here,
0: Mm
1: -hmm. the land that we see around us on this beautiful campus here at Murdoch. And I just decided that I wanted to to come and live here and that was my next big goal. Um, So I visited all the universities in in Perth and um, made friends with um, uh, Professor Gail Phillips Mm -hmm. who was uh, my mentor for, for some years.
0: And I did a podcast with her just last week, actually, yeah. which was wonderful. I've known Gail on and off for
1: a quarter of a century. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, and, and yeah, and, and I stopped making music at that point because I was studying um, doing my doctorate. Um, I just started immersing myself more and more in, in the academic side. Mm. And, and now I'm swing, swinging back the other way again, making more music um, and trying to combine that with Mm. Mm. And
0: what? And your doctorate was done where?
1: Uh, it was started in two thousand and six, and it was finished last year. So and at was... Murdoch. Or... Yeah, yeah. Mm. yeah. And Gail was um, principal mentor. Oh, wonderful. And what was the topic? It was community radio in Western Australia, and it was about notions of value.
0: Oh really? Could we? I'm just gonna check the time. Oh, there goes your phone. Um, I'll wait till he deals with that. We've got about 10 minutes to go, if you've got 10 minutes. I wondered if, because I've got another meeting and I'm sure you have other things like answering the phone to do, could we talk about community radio, both in terms of the idea of it and the practice of it, but also the things that you found out in your research?
1: Yeah, uh, so I first came into contact with community radio uh, when I was in London. Um, University of West London is very close to Southall. Um, which is a fairly, um, I suppose, down-a-hill area of London. And this was 2003-04, and um, I'd been asked to go in as an educational consultant to provide some help with a community group. Mm -hmm. community group were working with a long-term unemployed of Southall, and they wanted someone to help with their radio courses. So they were using radio as a pathway um, to provide, I suppose, better educational outcomes for these guys that have been unemployed. Mm -hmm. So we're talking about things like communication skills, um, self-respect, dignity, um, all the things that long-term unemployed can lack. And they're using radio as a a method to do that. And at the same time they were doing that, they were also ploughing the field for community radio station that was soon to be uh, legitimised in the UK in 2004 as a third sector of of radio. Um, So that's how I got involved. Mm -hmm. So I was seeing seeing radio as a medium for empowerment for people who really needed it. And it's not just that it gave gave them an outlet to represent their interests
0: and concerns and pleasures. It actually was for, getting back to your remarks earlier about process,
1: their own self-development. Yeah, very much. It was about giving them, well, let's use an example that might help to open it up a little bit. Let's say you're being asked to write a script. mm -hmm. Um, For those that um, maybe are still developing their communication skills, writing a script is a really good way Mm -hmm. to to make your communication
0: concise, Mm -hmm. coherent and Mm -hmm.
1: focused. Mm -hmm. Sure. And then they get to deliver that. Um, in, in, a, in a radio program, and that builds their empowerment, their self-respect, and, and their ability to, in, in reality, go out and sell themselves to an employer. Yeah. Um, so, I found that side of community radio very exciting. I thought, geez, I, we can do a lot of good here. Yeah. This isn't just about, you know, Tony Blackburn and, and, and Chris Moyle and... All, all, all the you know, Radio doesn't have to be about these big characters or big commercial ventures. It can be other things. And I didn't really realize that until that point. So I thought, oh, maybe, maybe I'd like to study this a bit more. And Australia's community radio scene started out in the 70s. So it has a lot, it's a much more mature sector. Um, and that was another, another good excuse for coming to Australia, so I could study this, this sector maybe contribute somehow scholarly and uh, I developed a framework of value for the sector um, and uh, it took me about five years to, to do all the research um, but it gave the sector a way to um, look at what they're good at <laughs> and uh, judge themselves essentially internally against a, a very solid set of what is considered good good community radio practice. Up until that point, especially in Australia, a sense of value or a notion of value was a bit murky. Mm-hmm. Different stations are doing all sorts of different things. And that was part of the, the project really, to navigate all this murkiness, mm-hmm. contested terrain, and try and give everybody, not a one-size-fits-all model, mm-hmm. but a model that would accommodate everybody. Mm-hmm. Can listeners
0: find that anywhere?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's been um, published. Um, if you if you look me up on, on Google, you'll find a number of uh, journal articles that have been published with that model. Or you can go to the research repository and actually download the whole PhD if you can bear it, which <laughs> is one hundred and thirty thousand words. Gee, um, and the model is in there as well. Um, and it, it, generally, I, I think it's been well received. Um, by academics, anyway, Um, and the few stations that have looked at it have said this is is invaluable work. We can use this to guide our internal processes, Mm. which is exactly what I had in mind. What you hope for.
0: What are some Mm. of the things that would be important for community radio to evaluate itself by, as opposed to either commercial radio or public broadcasting?
1: Okay, Um, so one of the most important things about community radio is its ability to invite members of the community to participate. Mm-hmm. So a principal means of evaluation is how well they do that. Yeah. Um, how well do we get to hear the voices of the community um, rather than media professionals that we'd hear on um, public, um, you know, on the ABC or commercial radio. Um, so participation is very important. Um, Voices that um, are not heard elsewhere. Um, Also representation of community, which goes hand in hand with participation. Um, So some community stations tend to, uh, there are two main models of community radio. One's a generalist model. So somewhere like Radio Fremantle, just down the road here, they function as more as a facility for lots of almost like mini mini stations. So there'll be, um, indigenous program, there'll be a, a woman's program, there'll be a gay and lesbian program, and there'll be a jazz program, a classical program, all these little mini niches, um, and they operate out of the one facility mm. of Radio mm-hmm. Fremantle. Whereas if you look at another station in Perth like RTR FM, they have a generalist event at the weekend, but during the week they describe, them, they describe themselves as the sound alternative, and they look at very um, alternative issues, so they'd look at Independent media stories. Their current affairs is uh, looking at issues that are not dealt with by um, other media. Mm-hmm. They tend to be focused on more, dare I say, it, left-wing issues. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, um, Greenpeace, Amnesty International, those mm-hmm. those kind of things. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so, and that they would be a specialist station, Right, right? right and a specialist station and a generalist station have two entirely different Yeah, yeah. You
0: know, one is definitely about access and there's no narrative thread other than that. Mm. Whereas the other has some themes. Quick last one if I may, okay. due to pressure of time. No, and this no, but this is a complicated one. The Q word, Simon, quality. Okay. Where does this come in and how does one define it? Your starter for ten.
1: In in community <laughs> radio? Yeah. Okay, um, I think that's actually a lot easier um, than maybe you think. Uh Uh-huh, okay, Um, good. Because... uh, We like ease. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) One of the things that I realized in the course of the research, that the most important people in community radio are the stakeholders. Mm. So the stakeholders consist normally of three main groups. So the participants, Mm. the people who make the radio, the listeners, Mm. and then we have other interested groups like sponsors and um, community groups that feed into community radio. So quality is determined by those three groups. Mm-hmm. So if you go to the listeners and say, "You know, is, is this a good program and why? They will tell you. Mm-hmm. If you go to the participants, they will have their own um, view of quality as well, mm-hmm. and the sponsors also have their view. So part of my um, research was to try and correlate all that um, it triangulates I think is the, the right academic word, um, and then we'd bring, we'd, we'd have a, a more comprehensive view of what is perceived as quality.
0: Right. So there's no essential understanding, it's very much contingent
1: on the
0: eye or the ear in this case, of the beholder and the mouth as well. Oh, contingency
1: is a word that comes up a lot yeah. in
0: my conclusions. Yes, yeah. great. Great. and they're, they're the best kinds of conclusions. Well, Simon, thank you so much. I wonder if I could inveigle you back into the pod another time to talk some more, because we skimmed over the surface of so many topics, and I'd love to hear more of your thoughts and your experiences. Great, thank you. Thank you.